everyone, and welcome back to One Mic Night, the next episode. My name is Marco Solis. This is One Mic Night, the podcast. A podcast that brings you stories of artists and people on their journey in entertainment and life. Helping to guide, answer questions, and inspire your path in the business of the world. Today's guest is a musician, a composer, a guitarist, and he is a plethora of knowledge. He's been in on the New York scene for a long time, and today he's going to share some stories, we're going to learn about his life, and it's going to inspire us in a different way. Please welcome my guest, Kyle Christian. What's up, Kyle? Mr. Louis, what's happening, brother? How are you? Doing? Thanks. Thanks well, for having me. Yeah, man. Thank you. Welcome to One Mic Night Podcast. Now, you I've known for a while, and you it's a shame, are. Isn't it? <laughs> and I gotta say, man, you are an inspiration to me personally in the business. I remember one night you walked into One Mic Night, and we were playing, and you're so humble, man. But you, you are. I consider one of the greats in the business. So I want to back up for everybody, and, and we want to. I want to hear your story a little bit. So, where where are you from, first of all? Um, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Moved to Bedford Stuyvesant in '78. Um, was in Brooklyn, but we moved to that section of Brooklyn in '78. Shout out to Brooklyn. Shout out to Brooklyn too. That's where we absolutely. do the show from. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Grew up on Bainbridge Street between what is now Malcolm X and Stuyvesant, used to be Reed Avenue. Um, and my that was part of my earlier time in Bedford Stuyvesant, you know, going to school. School was right down the street, which was Martin DePores, uh, now some crazy high price condo now. If you ever walk there, you'll see it. Um, but I went to that school and they actually, one of the teachers did teach, they did teach us music in that school also. Mm -hmm. um, music was in my household because my, realistically, my first guitar teacher, speaking of that, was really my mother. Because I used to watch my mother when I was a little guy and she would play guitar and I would just be staring at her. So anytime she would put the guitar down, I would grab it and run around the, house with just pulling on strings because I thought I was doing something. You That's know? interesting. Where where did she where did she uh get the, the musical knowledge from did her family I, your whole family play? My mother's yeah. side, I'm not too sure where it began for her. Um the my mother's the lady I knew was my grandmother, I guess I can say maternal, so to speak, who raised my mother was um she was from the islands. That was my her name was Imogene Jandro. Um, there was music within that household too because we also grew up on um, uh, a lot of times over on uh, 60 Brooklyn Avenue, right off of the Atlantic. Um, you ever see that house over there? I grew up there. Um, so that side of the family was, but it was not discounting my mother's side of the family, but more so even more influential my father's side of the family. Um, my grandfather and my grandmother, you know, my father's parents, um, were very heavy in the arts. My grandmother taught dance, tap, ballet. Um, and, you know, she had 
various children in her uh, class. And one of them was being uh, Dawn Lewis, who wound up being Jaleesa on Different World, right, one of our yeah. early students. Now, see, um, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I don't mean to cut you off, but I'm thinking to myself, you know, wow, that's, that's amazing. You know, you have a family in the 70s growing up, you know, all immersed in arts, you know, tap dancing, music, Caribbean. But I guess I shouldn't be yeah. surprised because we're in Brooklyn. We're in New York. Yeah. yeah. It was a, f and I, I mean, I don't say this, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit more about my grandfather in a brief moment, but I don't, and I definitely don't say this out of, any elite or egotistical or arrogant context because there were a lot of families like that. And, you know, when you grow up in that environment, sometimes you think that we got music in the house, we got albums, we got our own little personal record collections. Radio was still decent, well, real, really good at that time. That's the reason why Larry Graham made that song. My radio sure sounds good to be that was when radio right. sounded good, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you think that when you're growing up, everybody has this until you visit someone's home and right. they might not have what you have at home. You're thinking, you don't have a piano or you don't have a guitar here. Or you don't have no <laughs> percussion or nothing like that. I, where's your drums or, you know? you. I mean, it's, it's just not like that once you start visiting other people. It doesn't make them folks who didn't get into music or art or any type of uh, creative endeavor doesn't make them less than anyone. You know, my grandfather, his family, they came from St. Kitts. They came to New York. And as he grew in his creative endeavors, I'm just speaking of my grandfather in particular, he wound up becoming this first class, and I say world-class trumpet player. You know, some people can debate me on that. That's fine. It is what it is. He held court with all of those jazz kings and queens of the era. So everybody in that uh, photo, a great day in Harlem, he held court with all of them. He knew them and then they knew him as well. But the only thing was he was supposed to be in that photo, but his boss wouldn't let him off work. Right. So he oh, missed the photo wow. shoot. And um, when my cousins and I think my sister were like, my well, when they were younger, because you know they were all older than me in terms of a decade or so, or whatever. Um, they would, they were younger at the house. They would see these people coming over, but nobody knew who they, they didn't know who they were until my grandfather's passing in '94. And then we're looking on the back of the program and like, what you know, like what, when you know, like that's who that was. And my older cousin's like, that's who that was coming by the house. So I I drew from all of that. You know, even though I'm not a straight ahead uh, jazz uh, musician, because I have a real respect for cats who are just really deeply rooted in that. I mean, I try to be as broad as possible, but it's a whole nother arena that demands a whole nother discipline and respect. It's not like, oh, I can, since I play, I'm adept at what I do. I can play this jazz, not necessarily, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so. Yeah. You have to approach it with a certain respect and, um, you know, and reverence, you know, to really execute it properly. And, you know, yeah, you can always add on to it. That's the one thing I liked about uh, my upbringing with the Jazzmobile program in New York. I don't know if they're still up and running with everything that's been happening across the country, but Jazzmobile was really a cool program for me. Kind what of was, what me was out that? of my ship. What was the Jazzmobile program? 
uh, it was when I took it. It was up. They held it at uh, IS two hundred seven on um, East IS. I think it was no, it was East one hundred twenty seven Street. It was IS one one o one or something like that. It was a high middle high middle school or high school, something like that, or grade school, in in East Harlem is where they held their classes at in the morning and. I didn't even realize at that time, I don't know if it's relevant to the, the interview or not, but when I would go to class and I'm walking through the first gate to get into school, because most of the public schools around the city, Brooklyn, Harlem, they're all designed the same pretty much. Um, when you're walking through the court, and my, I'm going here, this is the mid 80s, so this is like 87, you know, fall of 87. Um, I'm walking through the court and I'm walking over all these vials. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, damn, this is the height of the crack era. Yeah, yeah. I'm, like, sure. I'm, I'm aware of it, but I'm not really paying any attention. Right. Especially in every, Yeah, everybody yeah. who's who's dealing, using, or looking to possibly rob, let's say, a young 16-year-old kid with a fairly expensive instrument. They're all probably sleeping from the night before, from whatever the hell they were doing. Right. So I was pretty good. And then I would go from music class to where my introduction to the New York scene really began, which was Shelter Studios on uh, West 37th Street, like the corner between 8th and 9th. It was closer to the corner of 8th Avenue. And the gentleman that started that, his name was Steve Missler. And he was a world class drummer. and the story goes, if I'm wrong, and he does see this, and you feel free to correct me, but from what I understand, he arranged, possibly composed and arranged the drum parts for Billy Idol's White Wedding album. Mm -hmm. And it paid him a flat fee of like, it's like a five figure fee, maybe like what, 40 Gs or something like that. He took that, subsequently took that, and opened up his studio. At first it was in this music building, not the one that used to exist on 30th Street that they got rid of. There was another music building closer to the bus depot in, um, in the 40s, like West 40th Street or whatever it was. And he had his studio there. Then he found a space on West 37th, moved it there, occupied the, first, the top two floors. So I would go to that studio because my cousin would rehearse there with her band. She had a female unit band called um, uh, Feminine Mystique. They rehearsed and did their thing. My cousin, she was a, a first-class bass player, and it was Donna Travers. And when I we ran into each other again at a family gathering, you know, in uh, Jersey at my godparents' house, you know, she knew I was into music, and she told me to come on down and invited me to, to play with her band because that's how I learned how to play within a context of the band and know what my role was as a guitar player and she taught me how to listen. She taught me about, you know, so you got to play that rhythm, you know, so, you know, it's got to be on the one and it's got to be funky, you know, you give them, it's like JB used to tell his crew and tell Bootsy, play all that other stuff, I just need that one. Right. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, and that's, I eventually learned the importance of space and the importance of not playing. Everything doesn't have to be filled up because the, the, in, in that silence, there is, there is, um, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, like within those, there's, there's a, a space between each note, 
because if you take time in between each note, that space, that space says a lot too, and it doesn't have to be loud, doesn't, you don't have to hear any, but that silence is what's necessary in music a lot too. Everything right. it carries, doesn't have it to definitely carries importance. That silence right. carries importance, yeah. Right. Yeah, for right. sure. So it's everything doesn't have to be one, two, three, four, five, six, it's one, you know, two, three, four, and then, then on and on, you know what I mean? Right. So I learned that. And then, of course, it, that sort of ideology, if you will, was enforced by a good friend of mine. His name is Thurlin James. He actually took over the guitar spot from Larry Mitchell, who's a world-renowned guitarist, and musician, producer, and what have you. He used to let me play his guitar and try out stuff. And I would, he would play something, he'd give me his guitar and I would play something back and I played something and you know, you young, you think, yeah, that was cool. You know, like, what you, <laughs> what you think about that? <laughs> and um, he just looked at me and he told me outright, um, he said, you, you're mowing down too many fucking notes. And I was like, normally a younger, individual would have taken it as a slight and not listened to it. But it was something about the way he said that, that I understood it at that point. And I said, mm. oh, I got it. You right. know, it, it's, we get him, we as guitar players get impressed by the people we see, you know, which was like, you know, Hendrix and originally like cats like Hendrix, you know, Eddie Hazel, Funkadelic, right. you know, Shuggy Otis and, and Ernie Isley, Jesse Johnson, Mike Hampton from Funkadelic, you know, uh, Bootsy's brother Catfish Phelps, Catfish Collins, who's a phenomenal guitar player, still underrated to this day. You know, Johnny Guitar Watson, I'm going on and on. But we're impressed with the guys we see who are, do play with emotional, with emotion and um, heart, like, uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen, Joe Satriani, Steve Vai. And we right, want to yeah. jump right to that. But you have to take it slow first before you can build up to any of that stuff. Right. And, you know, most of the times, a lot of musicians think if it's loud and it's overdriven, then that's what it is. But if, you know, if I don't have my effects, then you, you well, if you didn't have your effects, what would you do? You still got to plug exactly. into the air. You still got to play. Right. So, you got to put the heart and the soul into it yeah, in order to make it great. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, it's, yeah, you can create different things with different sounds and that's what they're for. It's just icing on the cake. But if nine times out of 10, if you got the cake, you don't need to ice. And that's not knocking anybody down or destroying them. So it's just, you know, trying to pass on some things because I thought that way for a time. I'm like, yeah, I got to do this. And, have this pedal and people, what pedals are you using? Nothing. You know, nine times out of 10, I'm just me and my amplifier turned up in my guitar. Right, yeah. You know, I, I can use sounds and I like them to flavor certain things. Um, to You know, as far as that goes, the rest of my upbringing, um, you know, hanging around and watching Steve Missile rehearse his band, the rhythm team, that's how I met Larry Mitchell and uh, probably trailed Larry and just bugged the hell out of him. And um, he eventually, you know, to some degree, he had what I call most older musicians would do to young folks that would ask them, you know, whether it was young, young brothers or sisters or whoever, ask them something about music, trying to learn. And they have that, like I said, at one point that um, we call it W.C. Fields uh, thing, like, wait, kid, you're me, you know? <laughs> um, you know, so... Right. 
I was just like, man, you know, when I would get that, I would just like, at first I got angry about it, but then at first, after, shortly after that, excuse me, I just, um, I figured I was like, well, look, I'm going to figure this out one way or the other, whether you want to tell me or not. And I, and to a degree, when I look back on it, it's not, most sometimes it's, you know, the, the, the older sect is either fearful that the younger sect is going to pass them by or then they're not, they will no longer be of any use to anybody, which is how they're treated a lot of times in the business, which is unfortunate because they're needed. You know what I'm saying? We, Absolutely. we, we can't discard what they did because, you know, that path was, you know, that cornfield and stalks was high before they cleared that for us to see, you know, down that path. Absolutely. You know, without them, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't know where to go. It's it's so the way it's the way of the world. I mean, not just in music, but just the way of the world. The old, you know, the ones who who came before us can't be discarded because we're absolutely. taking the knowledge and we're standing on their shoulders in absolutely. order to do what we're doing. So yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, quick example. Like I pulled into a gas station one time when I was down here, and uh, I had uh, the first Zap CD in in the car playing. And you know, yeah, you know, more bounce to the ounce, and I'm going, right, yeah. yeah, get it. Young blood, blood brother comes up to me, says, "Um, young blood looks at me, and he says, hey man, yo, hey, what you listening to? Who, who that, who that dude you listening to? Hey man, who, who that dude you listening to? Um, cop, copying T Pain. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? I was like, what did you say? He said, that dude copied T-Pain, man. He doing the same thing. I said, That's no, funny. no, young brother. I said, let me show you something. I said, I said, walk with me for a minute. I said, let me show you something. I reached back in my car, pulled out the jewel case. I said, what does this say, brother? He said, oh, it's, it's a zap. I said, all right, flip it back around. I said, what does the back of this say? He said, it says the same thing. That the, I said, no, in the very bottom of it, of it. I said, what does that say? He said, oh, it's a Warner Brothers. I said, yeah, but what year is this? He said, 1980. I said, yeah, 1980. I said, dude, T-Pain wasn't even around. Wasn't when it, like, around, this exactly. Yeah. And I said, and that thing that you're hearing on this record is called the talk box, my dude. I said, T-Pain uses auto-tune. It's a big difference. T-Pain's not a multi-talented, multifaceted musician, at least not to my knowledge. If he is, hey, I stand corrected. As far as I know, Roger Troutman, much like Prince, played several instruments well. And that's the reason those albums sounded the way that they sounded. And I was like, I said, dude, you need to check this out because this is who the guy that you like is taking cues from. This is the guy from right. the Tupac, Dr. Dre, California Love. That California, all that stuff you heard, that was him. That's you it. Know? That's I it. said, this is the man that you need to look to. I said, this is the guy. I said, don't. And I told him, I said, now I might not be into T-Pain, but don't drift. If that's what you like, don't discard it. Keep it if that's what you did. I said, but do yourself a service, man, and go check this out. You know what yes. I mean? Yes. So doing that that's that's what i always used to do man you know i used to take certain things like that into consideration and then you know jumping back as i'm growing up in new york larry mitchell invites me down to he invited me to several of his gigs during the you know he, while he was touring and you know playing around in the city right. should i say mm -hmm. he subsequently had come back from a major tour and like 
mid eighties and started rehearsing his band. And then he started working on his solo album. And I was watching him perform around the city. He invites me to the bitter end for this night of guitars. It was like November of 89. And I Legend, come down. The legendary bitter I, end, which is still oh, around yeah, in yeah. New York today. Yep. Yeah. That, that was, I, yep. I grew up there, you know, I grew up in that place and um, literally grew up in there. And, you know, I come down, I meet Michael Hill for the first time. I saw him play um, some New York band, local New York band, can't remember their name. I just remember the, the, the gentleman that was playing guitar. He called himself Rick Oblivion. I was like, wow, what a name. I was like, okay. Larry Mitchell played first actually. And then he introduced Gordon Gaines now before that evening, I was getting all amped up and hyped up. I was listening to the Jimi Hendrix, Hendrix Cry Love album. So the first song on there is Freedom. It's killing. The track's killing. So I'm getting all into it. I'm going to meet up with my two, like my older brothers, you know, these cats are like my brothers. And um, we meet up at the bitter end. You know, we get into the bitter end and um, we get seated. And of course, the Waitresses are on me because they see I'm young and they think probably think I'm gonna try some crazy stuff or order something and and dash and like the doorman by the way his name was Kelly he had passed away not too long ago he was real cool became a really good good friend of mine I went up there saw this dude six three this white Polish dude <laughs> looked like the juggernaut <laughs> like, what do you want you know I was like I'm here to see Larry Mitchell he invited me down you got ID I said look man I'm I'm 18, I ain't into no drinking or no alcohol. I ain't trying to speak nothing. I came in for the music. You ain't got to worry about it. And he looked, he said, yeah, all right. You know, just make sure you don't, whatever. <laughs> Wait on you know it's two drinks. I mean, they were, they were on it. Like, I was like, oh my gosh. But any event, Larry Mitchell ends, and then he says, well, stay tuned for Gordon Gaines. He's going to blow your mind. And then Gordon Gaines takes to the stage. And as this is before I really got to know him, but when I got to know him, like he, picture Homer Simpson with like otherworldly guitar skills, like like that. He's a brother. Oh wow! Looks like Homer Simpson, but with wow, otherworldly that's guitar funny. skills. And um, sarcastic is all get out, but he steps to the mic and it's like this is for the man, and he proceeds to play Jimi Hendrix's "Freedom." Like I'm listening to the record all over again, and I'm like, what? you know, like get out of here. Wow crazy and I was like damn you know it's like I, I that that set me back I was like I'm either gonna have to really put some extra time to this and, and really know my stuff or I'm gonna have to go see if McDonald's is still taking people <laughs> like it, it you know, ain't too much room too many cats after seeing something like that man it's either gonna inspire you or it's gonna deter you to just keep them wrong with a straight job so I'm not knocking that so Nobody take that the wrong way, you know, respect everybody that works hard for themselves and family. But if you think you're going to be a musician and you just saw an onslaught of talent like that, you better take it seriously, man. I mean, it is work. It is something that we love to do, but it is work. You have to put the time into it, man. And I, I try to do that. And we all have our moments when we're feeling off and don't feel like we're at our best or we're not. We hit some kind of wall. All you got to do is just take a breather, you know, relax for a minute and then just go back and try to approach it in a different way, which is what Absolutely. I always try to do. But that connect was inf influential in me. And then that is, in turn, how I met a lot of the cats who were 
responsible for the New York music rock scene. Well, not I was just gonna rock say, scene. exactly. How did that propel you into who you are today? Seeing something like that, that mind blowing experience, you know, because I know that song and, and to play that song, a Hendrix mm -hmm. song, that's crazy. That's crazy. That song is, is simple yet intricate in so many ways, but right. it's, it's, it's one of his best, to me, it's one of his best songs, not discount, discounting anything, because Hendrix is an absolute genius. And um, it, that song and that album in, in its entirety just changed my whole scope because the, the story behind it, if I'm not mistaken, is he never finished that record. So apparently that record wasn't mixed. Mm. I was like, if this is a record wow. he did that they put out that wasn't mixed or he didn't finish it, I'm like, that's insane. That so insane. I would I would have like been completely blown out of my spirit to hear what he really intended because he didn't finish this particular record. And I'm like, it's crazy because he was such not just a great a lot of people just focus on his guitar prowess. And I dug his vocals. Vocals are and crazy people, too, so yeah. He wasn't the greatest yeah. singer. No, it's not. No. Sometimes you don't have to be the greatest singer. Nope. But it's it's your delivery and right. the emotion behind it. And that's what I got out of that. And then in the New York scene, when I started meeting uh, my friend Andrea Green, she was the guitar player of her band called Mascara. They were the only female rock band, women of color, black women doing this at the time. There was no other power trio on the scene, to my knowledge, doing what they were doing. And it was crazy. I mean, they went from rock to funk to just reggae. It's, it was bananas. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, and meeting, watching them open shows at Wetlands and Tramps, seeing them open for Living Color. That's how I met those guys in a uh, family stand you know that's how i met b jeffrey smith and myra yeah, yeah, yeah. um my uncle just passed ronnie drayton uh mooney he was the guitar also a guitar player in the band rocky listen man I'm, I'm i'm lucky to have some of these people come through one mic night and experience those people myself you know yeah man yeah, that's, yeah, that's man. crazy they they whether they knew it or not i i periodically drop messages on some of them and i just tell them thank you you know, because a lot of times after a show, you've got so many people coming up to you and you're having all these side conversations after yep. the show. You know, you can't uh, register every conversation that you have. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of that. That's why when I meet somebody, if they have a big name, nine times out of 10, if I say, hey, what's happening, man? How you doing? And they just rush past. I don't really take offense to it because I'm like, you know what? I don't know how many people you done encountered throughout the course of the day. I'm not sure, you know, how many meetings you might have had to have right. taken before you start pre-production on a film, before you had to go start a soundtrack or whatever. You might be mapping out what you have to do for this project that yep. you have a specific deadline for. If you come off a stage to a show nine times out of 10, I, it made me understand um, if you listen to that old Bobby Womack tune, uh, that's the way I feel about it. No, not that's the way I feel. Um, I can't remember it right now. He's talking in the beginning of it, and he's mentioning this, like, because of contracts and schedules, you know? And, um, no, it's called He'll Be There, you know? He'll be and, there, yeah. Um, yeah. 
he he mentions this very same thing because a lot of times you might have to come right off stage, go right to the bus, and maybe be that one person that really was touched and really just wants to say, hey, how you doing? Just thank you. I want to say thank you. Could you possibly take a picture with me or maybe sign an autograph? And you might not be able to do that because you got to leave right at that moment because right. you got to get into the next town, check in. Hopefully you'll have like at least that, that next day off and then you got your sound checked and all that stuff and whatever else and the promoter and the, all of that stuff. So nine times out of 10, we see the show, we've just paid for the show, but we don't see all the other stuff. So man, I tried to say hi to such and such, but the hell with them. They, yeah, but you realize they had to get on the, get in a, in a, in a bus or a town car or a limo to go right to the airport because they got to go right to Paris. Exactly. They got to play. They got to go right to the radio station. And Hopefully they'll get some sleep and then they got to go do a show and then come back, do another in-store and then maybe do get some sleep and then they got three more shows after that before they go from Paris back to, you know, Detroit and then come back and do things all over again. Sometimes it just works that way. It works that way. And um, I, I want to say two quick things. One, shout out, like we were just talking about all those bands. Shout out to the family stand. Shout out to B. Oh, yeah. Jeffrey Smith, who used yes. to come through one mic night every week. Shout out to uh, Sandra St. Victor, who came through one night and blew the roof <laughs> off. You can check that video out on the One Mic Night YouTube page. Ooh. And shout out to Corey Glover, from Living Color, yeah, who actually got One Mike Knight kicked out of his first spot because he blew the roof off of that place and I had to move <laughs> it to another spot. So please yeah, go check those guys out. Yeah, man. Um, Corey, phenomenal talent. Phenomenal. Man. It's ironic that I I trailed him somewhat, I guess I would say academically, because mm -hmm. I went to Borough Hall Academy, which Brooklyn Tabernacle has taken over that building on Smith Street and the subsequent theater that used to be on Fulton. Okay. Um, and he he left there and wound up going to Julie Richmond, and then I wound up going to Julie Richmond. I had one of his saved teachers, so I told him that. I was like, one of my, I was wisecracking in class. The teacher's like, you're just like Corey Glover. I was like, <laughs> you know? So anytime I, what time I got a chance to tell him that, we just sat back and laughed at it, but cats like him, and um, I gotta give, uh, acknowledgement to um, uh, Melvin Gibbs and DK Dyson who have founded the group I and I. Like a lot of people in the area in Brooklyn and around, they know about that group. That was a very underrated group. Them, Richie Harrison, Andy LaSalle, my man, uh, another, my, my big brother Gary Paulson. He was the original guitar player in there, and then Andy LaSalle came in later on. Um, Richie, Ra Harrison, Richie Harrison, he was the drummer, phenomenal producer in his own right. Mm -hmm. um, the circle was really small because a lot of times when I found out who we all knew, when I was a younger guy, the older guys didn't want to look bad trying to punk the young kids. They'd go get their little brothers to try to fight me. And then one of the guys I used to, <laughs> I used to tussle with wound up being Gary Paulson's nephew. And I found that out later. <laughs> it was like, what? I was like, so we were really all like this. Right. I was going to say, what really was the community know, like? You know? Yeah. And what it's funny because like? cats like Jabril Torre, um, phenomenal bass player, um, that played with, plays a lot with um, 
Jerome Jordan and Ramsey Jones, the drummer. Ramsey's a phenomenal drummer. Ramsey's family is uh, RZA and ODB. That's his family. You know what I mean? So a lot of times when RZA does his shows and Jizz and those cats decide to do shows, they always call on that hit squad of, you know, Entrified McLeod, Ramsey Jones, Jerome Jordan, Jabril Torre. That's the hit squad for them. Mm. And Jabril grew up down the block from me, you know, back in the day. And always see this cat sitting on the step, playing, not saying much, but he was a, he was taking his thing seriously, man. And he, he turned out to be one of the fine musicians. So cats like that, I was fortunate enough, a lot of them to see them start and see them grow. Even though I was the guy mainly in the cut, you know, you didn't see me at a lot of places. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I was a square, you know, I, I didn't do a lot of things most people did and I don't know you know I'm just I'd rather just be right here right um, but that's okay because you were there and you still picked yeah. up all the knowledge and all the things that were going on at the time absolutely and that's absolutely. that's important absolutely and that's what made the city great and it's, it's unfortunate to me you know New York you you go to different countries or places and people know that you're from there you're up there they're so intrigued with it and you know, as and I'm, that's not discount any place else in the states. Not you know, Minneapolis has its own culture. Right. Dayton, Ohio, with you know, Cincinnati, you know, spawned all those great musicians. Sure. Minneapolis, not only um, was you know home to Prince and and Alexander O'Neill and Jimmy and Terry and all those cats, but you know, who's could do the replacements? Another uh, great band that didn't really get the shine they deserved was called. Um, ipso facto um and you got all these places but when people find out you're from new york it's supposed to be the front runner in arts and culture but they're so quick to take away these venues where all yeah, this stuff right. eminence. and it seems sometimes like you, you only want it it's only deemed legitimate unless it's at the met or lincoln center or right. carnegie hall and no knock to those venues but i'm like you can't you know, put a, a, a leash on, you know, creativity. Joe Bowie came from St. Louis, um, I believe, uh, to New York. And in the late 70s, early 80s, this man single-handedly changed and breathed life into the Bowery scene. And in that band, in, in, which was defunct, all of these great players like Kelvin Bell, Melvin Gibbs was the original bass player there. You know, um, I think his brother Byron, Bowie was in there. His his older brother, Lester Bowie, was uh, a staple and icon in the jazz scene and jazz circles. Yeah, right. Um, You're right. You know, so these these guys came from this town. You know, these brothers, and they changed the face of it. A lot of times, when people mention CBGBs or the Bowery, someone did a documentary, a reporter from I don't know what magazine. I won't mention it, even if I do remember it. You know did this montage of all these bands like i guess new york dolls or the sex pistols or whatever and, and i'm like okay well have you're talking about this scene how are you gonna leave out defunct how are you gonna leave out living color how are you gonna leave out i and i or wayne livingston who's another brooklyn native have had a band called shop council um this other cat named damon mendes had a band in new york city a power trio, man, called um, August Cross, man. I saw them at the bitter end, which comprised of Booker King, Damon Mendes, 
Um, I can't remember the, the guitar player's name. He was a phenomenal player. And the lead singer, cannot remember this brother's name, but he looked like Terrence Trent Darby, I kid you not. And, but he could sing, like he was phenomenal. And I saw all of this unfold at the Bitter End. All of these bands wow. come from all these different places, from rock and roll, blues, uh, country, electronic, funk, soul, you name it, including um, his brother Paul Malloy. You know, we call him his band was PM and the New Breed, and Mary Harris was the original drummer for that band. And I saw all these people just come in and just create, make it happen. And they went on to other things, great things. Right. And that influenced me to, to want to just kind of have a small, put my little small stamp on it or have, you know, my little imprint on, on it and what I could do as a up and coming player, you know? So I, I do my best, you know, these days to teach whatever I know to whoever is interested. And that's the way, it, it continues because I can't, you can't take it with you. And right. I've said it Absolutely. before, if you don't empty, siphon out what's in the picture, yeah. you can't add to it. So you're not going to learn nothing. And, and it's too important to lose. And somebody they, has yeah. to teach it. What do you, what do you see the, the New York music scene now? Do you think we're in a post COVID period? Do you think it'll bounce back? Some of these <laughs> venues have closed. What's, what's happening now? What's the future of music and the, and the, and the scene here, the live music scene? It's honestly, I'm if I, you know, my honest answer sometimes I feel like no, I've seen other people because certain things have opened up or eateries or restaurants have opened up partially. I've seen other people outside having a chance to play after so long, and people do appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't really foresee it going back for some odd reason when I did my last gig in the city I turned around and I could just see everything still you know almost like that scene in that was that old Tom Cruise film Vanilla Sky right and the whole yeah. street was empty, empty. and yeah. I was just like I, I I'm not trying to be sound deep I'm prophetic. I'm not Nigradamus. I, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I don't predict nothing, but right. you know, I just, most high just hit me and had this feeling. I turned around. I was like, man, this ain't gonna last. And I was ready to roll up out the city anyway. And I didn't feel not get nothing, you know, against any. I'm not upset with anyone by any means. You know, I didn't feel any that same sense of uh camaraderie to lift you know, your, your, your next person up. I saw a lot of competition. And, yeah. and in saying that, I saw, you know, a few musicians that had a residency at a local uh, nightclub in the village. I won't say which one it was. And they were trying to berate this cat I knew who played in the subway. And I've known this guy since 92, 93. Been playing nine times out of 10. You can see him in the tunnel on the uptown side of West Fork. So on an average night, the average club holds about 150, let's say 200 people. Um, if the person's getting charged 15, $20 to come in, and nine times they're coming in because they hear the music, music's good, they're gonna take interest, they're gonna stop. And even if they were just curious and just wanted to hear, they'll stand outside for a minute, doorman, so why don't you go in and check it out? You know, sometimes they don't charge. They go down nine times out of 10, they stay. But even the people, let's say the average folks that come in and they do pay $15, $20 to come in. 
you sitting down, you got to fulfill that drink minimum and then, you know, food and all of that. And then if they really dig the band, they're going to bless the band with, you know, some dough on top of what the band's getting, which is, I mean, it's not the public's business, but they're going to put a lot of love in that bucket. Right, you yeah, know? yeah, sure. And I've seen that time and time again. Now, some of the guys and few of the guys in some situations trying to scoff this cat in the train station. I said, well, I know for a fact this particular cat on a good week or, you know, night, if he has a, a week of good nights, he'll make $150, you know, times five or six, because sometimes it's down there six nights. So 150 times six, you do the math. He's doing better than you are because you don't have to split nothing with That's nobody. Right. So again, if you're taking the whole lion's share of the money, that who's really winning here? Because don't look at it because you're not in an environment that's not a club environment. He doesn't have to answer to the club owner. Club right. owner, there was no club owner, any middleman that's ever going to no middleman. What he's going to make? That's right. Okay. <laughs> so, and, make, and on top of that, he makes his own hours, so he yeah, knows what he wants to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I looked at him and I just said, well, who, who's winning now? That's right. And then they kind of got a little quiet and I said, okay, there you know, you perception is everything now, isn't it? I said, just because you're in here getting a, a, a check and I'm not mad at that. This is good that you get that exposure, chops, you know, chops tight. But who's really winning out who's in the winning? end? It's That's almost it. sort of like the old interview that Tavis Smiley once did with uh, Prince Shaka Khan and Larry Graham of BET and um, Prince made a statement but Larry Graham reiterated and he had his new album at the time he said you know if I sold 100,000 copies of this at a record company to say that's a flop he said but if I sell 100,000 copies of this right now he said I done made $700,000 really? There you go. As, as opposed to you generating 5 million for a record company and then you only getting one or a third of a cent per record, it, right. and you wind up with, you know, what, 200, or no, let's say you wind up with $175,000 after everybody took a piece of it. But this guy just made 700,000, you know. 700,000 right there, that's it. Business, so, listen, you know. Listen, man, we gotta end on this note. Yeah, you know? yeah, we gotta end on this note, and I, I appreciate your time. Tell everybody how we can find you on social media. Um, Kyle S. Christian on Facebook, on IG, it is Mr. Christian himself. And I am starting, will be starting lessons pretty soon for those who are interested. So you want to learn and you, you know, I'm willing to teach you and, you know, teach you whatever it is that I know that can help you be a better musician. There you go. Even better than me. You know. That's right. You, you, you're going to do them virtually too? Yeah, I'm going to start doing some online classes pretty soon. So anyone can check my IG page. Um, uh, my Facebook page is pretty easy. You know, Kyle is Christian. Nothing complicated. Um, just trying to do something different and, and give back, you know, the best I can, and which will help me learn in turn. There you so go. that's where we are. And, you know, Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate you, brother. Yeah, man. And that's that's why I had you here, because that's what you do. You give back all the time. You're so humble about your experience, and I appreciate it. 
you like that old man talk too much, don't he? <laughs> no, not at all. Stick to one thing, you know? <laughs> thank you. I want to thank you for joining me here on One Mic Night. Everybody, please make sure you follow Kyle on all the social media. And you can follow us at One Mic Night. One Mic Night is spelled O-N-E-M-I-C-N-I-T-E on all social media. Go to the dot com and click on the links. You can find all the social media tabs. You can also follow me at Marco Solis, M-A-R-C-O-S-L-U-I-S. Let me know what you think about this show. And also go down to the comment section. Make a comment about the episodes that you like or anything you want to talk about. This is One Mike Night, the podcast. I appreciate you for joining me and sharing these episodes. We'll see you next time. Awesome.